Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is what's known as Lawrence Culp headlines. This guy is the king of transparency. He was at Danaher for years. And these are, I'm counting them, John, quickly, nine, maybe 11 brutal headlines as they move through the accounting. Do we have the correct gentleman to speak to about this? I think maybe we do. We do. Stephen Iceman with us with uh, uh, Newberger Berman today. Do you own General Electric shares here? I do Long not. Short? I used to be shorted. You were shorted, cleared it out? I covered it in December. What led you to cover it, Steve? Um... It had gotten to my price target. Um, I still thought things were bad, but you know, Culp is a good CEO. Yeah. And I figured people might give him a free pass. And I didn't have a theory that, that the company was going to go to zero. So I figured, you know what? Be, be a gentleman, <laughs> cover your position, and walk away. Well, th- th- this is a really important distinction, and that some short sellers. They almost want to not squeeze every penny out of the transaction, but they they, no, they, they want to like pound the a company into into death and and with with harm to employees, et cetera, which is the sort of the social response. What you're saying is, here's the opportunity. Let's make the price, but let's not pound the company into death. And look, Jeff Immel, in my humble opinion, butchered the company. Um, every acquisition that he make made was a disaster the worst being the last one which was alstom and yeah. everything that he sold he sold right. at the bottom and the balance sheet was impaired the accounting was a travesty right. and this has all come out right. i know in the in the iceman house there was no Velveeta cheese you were Velveeta cheese free we have been Velveeta cheese free for a very long very time. long time okay fine but nevertheless there are really smart people making colossally bad decisions involving massive write-downs in goodwill, bad will, and whatever will. How does this happen when smart guys get in a room? Why, why do you have the Alstoms occur? Why do you have the Alstoms occur? Why do That's you a very good the, question. I mean, look, I, I think Jeff Immel may be one of the worst CEOs in corporate American history. Um, that doesn't mean he's stupid. You know, smart people make mistakes all the time, and sometimes mm-hmm. when they get on a sort of way of thinking about things, they can get off it. Um, just because you're smart doesn't make you right. But John, I mean, I'm still, John, I, I find extraordinary the write down at Kraft Heinz of these, and so rapidly. I, I agree Happen with that. Quickly. But this is what happens when you carve up R&D, right, Steve? You slash R&D aggressively, doesn't your product suffer in the end? Well, I mean, you know, par- part of the issue is that um, corporate America has been rewarded in terms of stock price for buying back stock and not investing in their companies. And that works best for companies that don't need much CapEx. It doesn't work particularly well for companies like Kraft that do need CapEx and R&D yeah. to improve their businesses. But that's been the, the trend of corporate America for the last 20 years. Got to get to the Brexit discussion with you. Um, some well-publicized shorts of some British banks, Steve. Help me understand the process. At what point do you look at the political situation in the UK and say it's time to cover? Just walk me through your process as you short these individual banks. In I mean, look, I'm Kingdom. short three banks. Yeah. They're not large positions. So even if I lose money, I'm not going to lose a lot. Um, I still think a bad outcome here is possible. You know, if, 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 there's a ver- if there's a very long delay of 20 months, I'll probably cover because people will just forget about it. If the delay is only for three months, 
I'll stay. And, you know, people are, the way the market's acting, they're thinking that getting a delay from the EU is automatic. It's not automatic. You need all 27 countries unanimously mm -hmm. to agree. All you need is one to say no. You mentioned Zillow earlier. You were uh, had a, a negative view on Zillow, and then it's bounced up a little bit. Uh, do you reaffirm caution on Zillow? Do you short here? I actually, you know, look, I was here in August when Zillow, I think, was in the 60s, and I pitched it as a short, and the stock went down quite precipitously. I think from a fundamental perspective, I actually think Zillow is a better short today than it was Why? in August. Two reasons. Number one, in January, when the company when the company recently reported its fourth quarter earnings, they said that they were going that their entire growth initiative was this business of flipping homes and giving people mortgages. They are taking their entire free cash flow and putting it into that business. That is a high risk business. It has the potential to really anger all of its real estate broker customers on its platform. And so it's, it, it's potentially impairing mm -hmm. its actual base business. And finally, it's the reverse of what's worked in the market for years. Market pays for high free cash flow, low cap X. Right. This is a company that is taking all its free cash flow from that business and plowing it into a financial services well, company. We gotta leave it there. Steve Eisman, thank you so much. Good and to I see you, Steve. I should point out that on any shorts at Bloomberg News, here's a, we of course contact the companies and we'll contact uh, Zillow as uh, well. This is a joy. Patricia Mosser with us um, uh, with the uh, MPA program in Economic Policy Management at Columbia uh, University. We're thrilled that she could be with us. Uh, now, on the Fed, on the policy forward, and maybe a little bit on this raging debate of MMT. Patricia, wonderful to have you uh, with us today. You were at Wellesley. Did you, did you learn your initial economics with the legendary and greatly missed Carl Case? I certainly did. He was actually one of my professors very early on there. Chip was um, one of my mentors as, a, as an undergraduate. That is a good and advantage thing. And what Chip Case would say is foundational economics begin. Is the Federal Reserve of the United States, are they working Chip Case economics or are they in original <laughs> territory? Yeah, well, a little, a little of both. Part of what they're doing uh, is pretty traditional monetary policy. I think they're the way that they have... Uh, both uh, given some guidance and talked about their strategy for setting the policy right. Um, it's pretty classic central banking. Um, they are right now, obviously, as everyone knows, uh, on a pause. Um, I think the prospects are, and I think they've been pretty clear that they're going to be data-driven. That's pretty classic yeah. uh, central banking. They're, you know, if inflation or the growth picks up a lot, they're going right. to tighten some more. If we stay in this limbo, they're going to wait and see. And um, I have no doubt that if uh, growth and inflation take a nosedive, that they'll that they'll that they'll uh, cut rates. Uh, the balance sheet, of course, is the new is the new territory compared to history. Um, they have been tweaking right. their balance sheet, as everybody knows. Um, I have to say that, and, and they have tried very much to separate what they're doing with the balance sheet from these from the the short term. Can you do There's that? Can you that. do that? Yes. Well, I think they're doing it right now. Um, they they paused on rates and they're still shrinking the balance sheet. Um, I think you certainly can. I think the question will become the interesting question will be is if output and growth will uh, uh, actually deteriorate very significantly and they begin to cut rates, uh, 
um, would they put the balance sheet on pause? And eventually, as we know, they don't have a whole lot of bandwidth to cut rates compared to, say, if, we, if the economy went into a recession, for example. Typically, the Fed has cut at least uh, 300 basis points. They right. don't have 300 basis well, points to cut. And then they would, they've been very clear that they okay. would expand the balance sheet. Let me bring in my colleague, John Farrell. Well, that's nice of you. Sure. On policy. You know, I've been to Wellesley. You've been to Wellesley? I've been to Wellesley. Very to, to the Linden store for to breakfast, which was very fantastic. Good. Very good. Great was, breakfast there. Know. Should we get back to the Federal Reserve? Please. Okay. Yeah. Um, Patricia, <laughs> you actually spent a long, long time on the open market desk at the New York Fed. And for people that aren't on Wall Street, I'm not sure they're quite aware that actually the open market operations take place at the New York Fed. So when the Federal Reserve is buying all these bonds and building up the balance sheet, that's where it's happening. Patricia, walk me through your experience of what happens there, why the Federal Reserve is set to pause the balance sheet roll-off, why the Federal Reserve is going to do that, and why the market would like it to, and the difference between the two. So so I'm, uh, let me talk about the, the actual mechanics of the balance sheet part. Um, the first thing that's interesting about this is that the balance sheet, which the Fed is trying to get back to what they consider the new normal, uh, level, which is a much, much, much bigger balance sheet than it used to be for a whole host of reasons, most particularly the extra liquidity that both regulations and the, and the banks are themselves are demanding for their own risk management purposes. So the, the balance sheet is going to be very big. Currency itself is $1.7 trillion. Reserves are $1.6. They were $3 trillion, by the way, a few years ago. They was, so they've shrunk a lot. And then there's everything else that the Fed keeps on its balance sheet, which gets you up to about four. So... The Fed's going to accommodate the currency part. That's old-fashioned central banking. And currency grows 3 to 5% a year. So the balance sheet is never going to shrink that small. The question is that reserves piece, that $1.6 trillion. How much liquidity between the regulations and the bank's own risk management <clears throat> needs right. are they going to have to keep? A lot. Um, $1.6? Maybe. I think a garden variety number floating around is $1.2. So the first thing to note is the Fed is more than half done the balance sheet if you believe the market estimates for how far they're right. going to go. They're already talking about how they're going to stop. By the way, mm. in another year from now, the Fed, if currency keeps growing, the Fed will actually have to start to buy assets. Well, and within that is the dynamics of the Fed and, you know, an improving economy on a relative basis. What are the degrees of freedom that Chairman Powell has right now? If we're the strongest economy on the block, does he have optionality many others don't? Or is he limited because other central banks are so challenged? Sure. Um, certainly global growth spills back on the United States. Absolutely does. China is slow. Europe is slow. It slows down the U.S. The world's just too interconnected economically and financially for that not to be the case. And that is indeed one of the reasons, uh, it seems pretty clear, that the Fed has, has paused. U.S. growth has slowed down a little, nothing like the rest of the world. But inflation's also slowed down a little as well. It's a little, it remains a little below their target. So there's no point not to just sit and wait and see and see what happens. And like I said, after that, the day, the, I, I take them at their word, um, and it's pretty classic central banking that they'll be data dependent on the rate side. I would think absent a really huge deterioration in the economy, I, would, I, I think they would prefer to do their balance sheet normalization, um, given that it's not going to go on too much longer. Though, but I, I, I will say I think it's highly likely, based on the announcements the Fed's made to date, that, that, that 
they're um, going to well, uh, give out a lot more information about this at the next meeting, maybe the next two meetings. So they'll give a much clearer <clears throat> picture to the public and the markets about that. Professor, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Professor Patricia Thanks, Moser, Patricia. she's with Columbia University. Greatly, greatly appreciated uh, uh, there on uh, the Fed Dynamics. Time now to uh, move to an important conversation on the future of banking. Here is our Francine Lacroix. We are delighted to be here in Paris at the 2019 Global Markets Conference of JP Morgan and the man really of the hour, Jamie Dimon, the chief executive of the bank, joins me now. Thank you so much, Jamie Dimon, Happy for giving us a little bit of your busy day. Now, you've said in the past that actually with the UK and retrenching from almost their global duties, it makes it harder to do business. What does it mean for running a global bank worldwide? Yeah. I do think there's an issue about the fundamentals of American foreign policy and British foreign policy, they used to be very steady and steadfast and it's changing. And so all, well, my only point is, it, it does, we don't know exactly the potential of the future, so it's kind of a risk factor. It, but it's not gonna change anything we do. I mean, we're gonna invest country by country, client by client, just understanding that there are risks out there we may not anticipate today that we have to react to. But, but it must change the business of your clients. So do you have to be nimble in what kind of services they want and what you need to yeah. do? So in terms of, like take a Brexit, Clients are preparing, clients are requests. We gotta get forms and documents that the clients have to sign. So yeah, we are very conscious. We, whenever there's an issue like this, what it means for our clients around the world. Where they wanna do business, less people you know, are investing in China right now because they wanna see how the trade thing sorts out. So, so these things do change the flow of trade and investments around the world. But fundamentally, it doesn't change what we're gonna do. Okay, on Brexit, yeah. is the UK ready for a no deal Brexit if it happens? No. I think a no-deal Brexit would be a really bad idea. And I don't think it's just the UK, I think it's EU. You know, they, they didn't really prepare the last two years for a, what I call a hard Brexit, so a no-deal no Brexit. And that means a lot of things would change immediately. It would have a huge negative effect on the economy there. We're prepared. I know you spoke to Daniel earlier today because we have to be prepared. Not that we're predicting it, we don't think it's gonna happen. We think there'll be some kind of extension. I think the longer the better, but some kind of extension. So, you know, both parties can think about what they're really trying to accomplish and what the downsides are. So, what is it, a 10% risk, a 20% risk? And if it does happen, a no-deal Brexit, does it freeze the it's, markets? I'd, I'd say 10, but I don't know. Okay. It could freeze the markets. It could have adverse consequences you don't expect today. And if, we, if the closer it gets to that, we're gonna to go to a 24-7 war room status to make sure we're prepared, not just ourselves, but central banks, liquidity, clients, demands, you know, think, something like this will have unanticipated consequences that we should prepare for. But can London survive as a financial center? I think under a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit, London's financial center status will diminish over time. Because these other countries are gonna simply demand that certain more things be done there. Uh, it could be ops, technology, risk, legal, credit, order, compliance, regulators are gonna assist it. So I think it actually changes the forecast of what you expect for the financial center in London. Hopefully there'll still be a financial center. It will, it will be not quite what it is today. You mentioned Brexit and China when we started the interview. How worried are you on China? How should we look at China? And what kind of business do you want to do in China? Yeah. So China, first of all, the trade issues are real. They need to be resolved. They need to be resolved across all these issues. So I think the administration- Will they right. be resolved? We expect so. We think both parties want it, but they're complex. They're talking about having hundreds of pages of memorandums of understanding so far. If it doesn't get resolved, I think it's a reasonable thing for people in the markets to be, be worried about. 
China will be a fully developed nation in 30 years. Its economy is going to be as big as the United States, but it still has a tough road. They're very smart, but they don't have enough food, war, and energy. They have huge corruption. They don't have open, transparent. I mean, the markets you have here in terms of research and capability and knowledge and rule of law and board of they don't have all that there yet. So and it's not a criticism. They're going to have a way to go. So they'll grow now, but there'll be times in the future five years out where there will be real bumps in the road in China. Okay, well, so what does that mean? That as you know, an investor in China, you kind of slow down for four or five years until you see the lay of the land, or do you just go all in to get market share? So we're all in, yep. and so we're not slowing down. People are slowing down because of trade, not because of what I just said. But I, my point is that some, when they do have problems, you know, they might be building up huge imbalances in the financial system, that will come home to roost one day. Right now they can handle it. China's not like the rest of our countries. They can macro-manage. They can simply tell the fiscal people, tell the monetary people, tell the companies what they need to do, who they need to hire, but that won't always be true. And so one day, you know, these imbalances may cause a disruption. Call it a, a recession. Well, but what, so but you financial have, crisis kind of disruption? It could be. You know, if in America, we had a financial crisis, you know, and markets panic. Uh, they can handle that today, but I'm saying in five or seven years, they have to be careful about building up imbalances. Because the bigger the markets get, the more that the less they can control all the things that, that they would want to control to stop that from happening. So I'm not going to say it's going to happen, but we're so used to China going at 6%, 7%, that the second they don't, I think the world will react probably more scared than they should be. But where is the next financial crisis going to come from? Is it China? Is it you know political maybe Europe? Or is it actually U.S.? I don't think there's going to be a financial crisis by meaning... You know, Meltdown. Uh, but yeah, because the last one, there's far more leverage in the system. There's far less. There's no sieves. There's, no, there's not a trillion dollars of bad mortgages. There's, there's not leverage lending. I think the whole street is 40 billion. It was 400 billion. The bridge book on Wall Street. Financial companies have more capital liquidity. But there are mounting potholes out there. So I know Daniel said this morning that we, we see growth. We're, we're not predicting it won't go away. But these kind of these issues, trade, shutdowns, uh, Italy, Brazil, you know, they, they mount. And, and so it may not be one thing this time. It may be just a confluence of factors that kind of cause that dreaded recession. Where will we see, a, when will we see a recession in the U.S.? I don't know. I, I, it doesn't look like it's going to be 2019 because wages are going up, people going back to the workforce, housing is short supply, financial markets are wide open, confidence, business and consumer, in spite of some of these issues, is still in the upper quadrant, the upper quartile. So it doesn't look like anything, there's nothing we're looking at that says it's going to go away. The consumer's still spending money. Uh, you know, some numbers weakened a little bit recently, but it, it was nothing... Nothing that says we should grow 2%. Is uh, President Trump a two-term president? Look, I, there was an article in the paper today about presidential politics and primary and stuff like that. You know, if, if he very easily could be, particularly if you have a strong economy and people like a strong economy, you know, and the Democrats, depending on who they pick, you know, if they're way left, if they're mid-center, if they have rational policy, so it remains to be seen. But this article today went through Democratic primaries who the front runner was, how wrong they've been all the time. Right, but so what does it mean? What do the markets want? Is it too soon to say whether they want you know, a Trump twice or, or someone who would be leaning more socialist I, on I, the Democratic side? I don't think it's a market issue. I think it's what individuals, vote, voters want. And that's, that's too soon to say because they're gonna, people do listen to all sides and all issues. And uh, I think on the, on the Democratic side, my, my view is that people do want a strong politician who's also more of a centrist who knows economics, who knows policy, who knows foreign policy. And, you know, slogans are not policy. And you have, we have to be very careful. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And 
So, and among this crowd, it's not like almost 20 people, hopefully it will emerge a very strong candidate. When you look at small businesses, small and medium businesses in the US, how much are they getting hurt by the, you know, the, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, and should these big tech companies actually be broken up? Yeah, they're not, uh, I wouldn't say they're being hurt. I think some are being helped, some are being hurt. We've all lived with competition of all different sorts, so you can, I wouldn't say that's the reason. I think, I think the tech coming, I don't know about broken up, but there are serious issues around privacy, uh, which I think Europe is ahead of us on, about rights to data, rights to privacy, rights to delete it if you think it's inaccurate. Uh, and I think, I think the companies are trying to face that. The second one is about the democracy itself. Should people be allowed to use some of these systems to maybe affect our democracy? And the answer is absolutely not. And there, I don't know exactly how to stop that. There may be ways to do it. And the third is competition, which you, again, you, the folks you've been speaking about, that you, you, no one should be using kind of their platform to kill competitors. Kind of, kind of as a sine qua non. And so we, we've always believed in an open system and, and I think some do a quite good job of that. I yeah. think some others haven't done a quite a good job of that. But this changes, right? This time it feels different because before you competed in bricks and mortars. Yeah, they, they, yeah exactly. But, right. but again, that's creating opportunity. And so yeah, I think some people, obviously some small retailers have been hurt by that. Uh, but remember, the consumer votes with their feet. You know, governments can't come and say, you're not going to buy there. No, if you want to buy there, what we have to do is find a way to serve you in a way you're happy so we don't get killed by competition. Yep. Going to tell, ask the government to protect me from it is a huge mistake. When you look at M&A in the financial services or financial sector, B&B and T and SunTrust, what does that actually mean for consolidation in that space? Yeah, so America's got a little less than 5,000 banks. We support the, uh, the smaller banks. We think they, they've, uh, uh, regulators have been very tough on them. They don't have the same as we do and we support that. They're gonna, they're, you're gonna see consolidation. You know, the banking system everywhere around the world needs diversification, it has a kind of a scale, and so people are gonna do various ways to find it. So the more they, if they do a good job at execution, they'll be a tougher competitor. Right. If they do a bad job at execution, they'll be a lesser competitor. But can they be a real competitor? Are, are, are yeah, you yeah, actually sure. afraid of some of this competition? Remember, our competition, every city is that bank in the city. That could be Bank America, it could be SunTrust, it could be, and they could be really good in the city. And sometimes it's different, you know, in different cities, who's running a great system in that city, so. But yes, at the small business, SME, individual, yes, they could be real competitors. What do in global markets, no, because it's, that costs a lot of money and it's a huge network effect and huge economies of scale. What do European banks need to do to, to become more like U.S. banks? Yeah. So the, Europe, the American system recovered quicker, reacted quicker, and probably started more conservatively. But I'm very sympathetic to European banks. The point of the common market, which is excellent and still true, at a big market allows companies to compete, have very efficient, compete around the world, and because of the global crisis, they were constrained. So these banks need to merge to get the kinds of scale, diversification, product diversification, but it's hard to do if you don't finish regulations like the single regulatory mechanism, the insurance mechanism, and, and if politicians fight it, they will be subscale forever. And that's not good for their economies. They should really think through the choices here and allow these banks to, to merge and go pan-European. Okay, but does it, first of all, need to start domestically? So do we need to see a Deutsche Bank Commerce Bank merger for that to go through to then look at cross-border in Europe? Yeah, I, look, I'm not, I haven't analyzed that. I don't know. And to me, all mergers are the, bank merge the same. Is the business logic real? Okay, and it better be real. Uh, is the price right? And, and can you execute properly? Execution is usually the thing that people fail on. And that's management, technology, merging systems, you know, merging cultures, whatever you want to call it. And so if they do it right, yes, they'll be a better bank. 
If they do it wrong, they won't be. You know, I'm say they should never have done it, but it'll be based on the execution. How, do, do you have a number of how many European banks you think sh should be in the region? I mean, for the moment, a lot of people are saying this is an overbanked region that just has too many banks. Well, I think there's some truth to that. But, but the, the way you fix that is allow them. America had 30,000 banks, and now it's 5,000. Okay, so the merger was a hard process. And, I, and all those, as you know, a lot of those mergers failed, but they did put together bigger companies that could be globally competitive, and America has a huge market, so. But this is what, regulation? What, what is Europe not doing that it should be doing? I think they need to change the regulation to allow pan-European banking, allow consolidation. You know, even in Germany, if you're going to allow consolidation, you have to allow them to become efficient. That does mean layoffs. It's better for the long-term health of the industry. It's not good in the short run. And particularly for those people, and I'm very sympathetic to that, that's a political issue, not a regulatory issue. So both sides have to think about what they really want one day. Do you think the Western economies will go through an even bigger wave of populism? I don't know. But you know, when I listen to populism, I think Macron has done an excellent job here. And like I said, policy, slogans are not policy. But there are legitimate complaints. There are segments of society, I don't know if it's 20 or 30%, who are left behind. Inner city school kids aren't graduating in the United States. It's true for, for inner city school kids in Paris. We have this Advancing Cities program to get skills. Infrastructure is not being built. The opioid problem, the felon problem. Uh, we have these issues. And living, minimum wages are not living wages anymore, and they need to be. And so we need government working with business to figure out how we can educate the kids, get them living wage jobs, maybe have, you know, we have an income tax credit, it's like a negative income tax in the United States. We need to fix these problems. I, I, my view is that business has to really help. Business has to step up and help because it, it can't be done by governments alone. Yeah, and you've put the what, 30 million? In 30 Paris, million here, but that's a right? 500 million dollar effort for Is it working? How do you measure success? Yeah, we measure it the same way we measure it. What do we expect? How much yeah. do we put into the place? How many kids were trained? How many got jobs? How much do we put into affordable housing? How many affordable housing units were? And we're getting better at this. And so we, we, we run it, we review it, we review it all the time, but basically helping cities grow. It's affordable housing, it's, it's, it's venture capital for entrepreneurs of color, it's venture capital for women, it's venture, uh, uh, it, the skills is probably the biggest part of it. There are a lot of jobs, kids are graduating or not graduating, and they aren't job ready. And what? jobs create dignity. Jobs Why don't you go into growth. politics? I'm, that's just not me. Why? I don't want You're that. doing it, aren't you doing it? I, with with, I with trying to bridge the divide? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's the best I can do. Yeah. Would you ever, if somebody offered you a job in politics, would you uh, think about it? I, I don't think so. I love what I do, uh, you know, and hopefully I can do it for a while longer. So. How, how do politicians regain that trust from citizens, which seems to have been lost? Well, we've all lost trust, right? I mean, we have this crisis and the elite got blamed, and I, I would tell people, well, if anyone's to blame, it is the elite. That elite, by the way, is not just banks, it was companies, it was government leaders, it was union leaders. Something went terribly wrong, people paid a heavy price, and the only way you can earn back trust is day by day. Every interaction with every client, with every company. There are a lot of great politicians out there. I think Macron's doing a great job, Sa says the same thing to everybody. He knows that economic policy may not fit a slogan, but if you grow the economy, there's a... There's a uh, but there's a, huge protests in France. I know, I understand, but he's do I think he's doing that right too, which is listen to them. They reversed the gas tax, which was regressive and hurting lower paid people. And he didn't reverse his good policies. What he said, what I've read about it, what he's saying is, let's talk to your problems and fix them. What can we do to help you? And that's what he should be doing. You know, normally Paul do is a huge flip-flop and it's not good for the country. There's a mayor in Detroit who's turned Detroit. He got civic institutions, not-for-profits, schools, companies, help me with streets, streetlights, security, schools, jobs, and we're all helping him and it's working. That's, it's working at that level. 
Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. That is, of course, Jamie Dimon. He is the chief executive of JP Morgan. We were here all day at the 2009 Global Markets Conference in Paris. We talked about Brexit. We talked about the U.S. economy. We talked, of course, also about the risks of a global recession. Francine Lacroix in Paris with Mr. Dimon. This is always well-timed, a conversation with David Rubenstein, who's made a huge success of what we do at Surveillance, and that is extended conversation with newsmakers. I still speak of his conversation with Mr. Bezos of, oh, I'm going to say 14 months or so ago, and we're thrilled that Mr. Rubenstein of Carlisle could darken the door of our studios today. Paul Sweeney and I have 14 ways to go, but I'm going to suggest in Baltimore a few years ago, that a postal worker couldn't fake that you were a water polo athlete to try to get you into Duke University with a six-figure <laughs> bribe. That didn't happen, did it? It did not. I um, just filled out my application. I wasn't sure I'd get in because my handwriting was so bad yeah. that I wasn't sure they'd be able to read it. But maybe because they couldn't read it, they admitted me. What was the sweat factor at the Rubenstein house as you opened an envelope from Duke? Well, my parents uh, were not college educator or high school educated so they really didn't yeah. understand the process that much so they didn't understand yeah. what a thick envelope meant versus a thin envelope <laughs> but when a thick envelope came from duke and they got a scholarship they were pretty happy we always always talk about this 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 uproar here and we've all got our own stories there's a famous financier and philanthropist in new york every time I see him, I'll be blunt, I thank him for the swimming pool that he built in western Massachusetts at a fancy boarding school. You live this. You've given millions away. How do you respond to the non-David Rubensteins, the haves who've done this with their kids? They're so desperate to get into schools like Duke. I am surprised by this. Obviously, uh, I'm on a lot of college boards. I've served on four of them. Johns Hopkins, uh, Duke University for a long time as the chair, um, now on the Harvard board and the University of Chicago board. So I, I see a lot of people right. interested in getting their kids in, but I've never heard of anything like this. I'm stunned that I've been around the college world so long, and I've never even heard of this. I'm just uh, surprised that this could have gone on for so long, and it wasn't discovered by anybody. And you wonder, Paul Sweeney, with the discussion here of will there be many more to come? I mean, yeah, you I just got. I'm not saying it's the tip of the iceberg, but is it over? I doubt it. I don't know, David. How do you think universities do? Not just the elite universities, but just higher education in general, in terms of making it available to a diverse group of students uh, across this country. Well, when I went to Duke, and this was, I graduated in Duke in 1970, in those days, these schools were relatively white, I would say more Christian than Jewish, I would say more domestic students than foreign students, and more male than, than female. It's obviously, this has changed. Diversity is something that all these schools care much more about, and they have spent much more time getting first-generation students into these schools, uh, first-generation students being like me, someone whose family had not had anybody go to college before. Uh, you can always do better. I would say in the elite schools in the United States, probably 50 to 60% of the students are on some type of financial aid. And at Harvard, for example, I think there's 20% of the undergraduates are paying nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, nothing at all because their parents don't make enough money uh, to uh, justify their being paying <coughs> tuition. So um, it's better than it has been, but it can do better still. Yeah, you talk about the uh, the tuitions and, you know, obviously the issues that's really become more and more apparent over the last 10 or 15 years has been the amount of student debt that students come out when they, when they graduate. The solution there do you think it's some combination of the universities themselves 
with government, what do you think the ideal solution is to try to ameliorate that somewhat? Well, when the elite, the elite private schools, remember, there are thousands of colleges in the United States, and most of them are not that difficult to get into. We're talking about a relatively small number of schools where there's great demand to get into those schools. And the reason is there's a the perception that you have an advanced uh, position in life if you got a degree from Harvard, Yale, or Stanford, or some schools like this. And maybe that's true. On the other hand, many people who don't go to these elite schools do yeah, quite but, well in life as well. Okay, let's answer this. And you've been more than generous. You've re-upped with a lot of uh, contributions to your University of Chicago and the contributions you've made to uh, the philanthropy you've done with Duke University as well. The heart of the matter, David Rubenstein, is a bunch of haves want their kids to take Western Civ at name the school because it's going to be a better course they think that in another 200 schools how do you define these elite schools excellence versus another given 200 schools or is it just social mobility and networking and all the other stuff i know david rubenstein hates many many factors are involved but clearly if you can have your child go to an elite school uh, you think this person will do better, your child will do better in life. You think the person will mm -hmm. meet people who will do better in life. Uh, you think that it will be more prestigious perhaps for you, the parent, to have your child at our elite school. But again, if you go through the list of people who are running Fortune 500 companies, many of them have not gone to elite schools. They went to state schools that are good, but maybe not, quote, elite. So there's no evidence that you have to go to these elite schools in order to do well in life. But parents want to do the most that they can for the mm -hmm. kids, and they think getting into these elite schools and will be helpful. This would be like comparing Duke to Syracuse, right? Well, I do don't we wanna... want to make that comparison? <laughs> I don't want to. Uh, Not at this time of year, certainly. I would only say that uh, the basketball game between Duke and, and Syracuse tonight will be quite interesting. But um, do you have the Jack Nicholson seat ringside? You know, the courtside. Um, I'm not going tonight, not going unfortunately. Tonight, but no. uh, I do think that. Uh, Good schools will always uh, attract um, students who think that going there will make them uh, have a better life. Now, the most important thing to realize is that uh, parents who are trying to do these kinds of things to get their kids in, if it's the case that they're doing it, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the kids who actually apply to these kind of schools have these kind of, quote, advantages, right. relatively small. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. We're the Carlisle Group. Karen, thank you so much. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keen in New York. And joining us now, always of important note, is William Joseph Burns. Bill Burns is always an important conversation because of his public service to the nation. He is truly one of our diplomats. People parachute in for a moment. They usually have big lofty titles where without question in the 20th century, he is one of the earned titles of diplomacy with his years and years and years of public service uh, uh, with the State Department. His new book, The Back Channel, A Memoir of American Diplomacy in the Case for Its Renewal, is the definitive read for anybody who cares about American diplomacy. Bill Burns, what was your first day like when you were anointed, when you were allowed to enter the State Department to open envelopes? 
Well, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks so much. Um, you know, I, I didn't. My career didn't get off to a rocket-propelled start. <laughs> One of my first jobs as a new diplomat was driving a truck full of communications equipment, unclassified communications equipment, from our embassy in Jordan to our diplomatic facility in Baghdad. This was in the early 1980s, midst of the Iran-Iraq War. And to make a long story short, I managed to get yeah. the uh, truck and its contents confiscated. So as I said, it wasn't a rocket-propelled start for my career. But it shows the granularity of this. Do you have any enthusiasm within your wonderful memoir of the back channel and forward about the future of the State Department? Is the tone of our present president, is it a one-off or does it have some permanence? Well, I'm I'm really concerned, as I try to explain in the book. And to be fair, President Trump didn't invent all the drift and the challenges in American diplomacy. I think the truth is, since the end of the Cold War, you know, when the United States was the singular dominant player on the international landscape, we got a little bit complacent. And so there were periods in which either we didn't put as much focus on diplomacy as we might have, or after the huge shock to our system at 9-11, we tended to put more emphasis on the military and less emphasis on diplomacy. Diplomacy. I think on today's landscape, when we're no longer the only big kid on the geopolitical block with the rise of China, the resurgence of Russia, diplomacy is actually more important than ever for promoting American interests in the world. And in a way, it's our alliances, it's our capacity through diplomacy to build coalitions of countries that sets us apart from lonelier powers like China and Russia. And so my concern in the current administration is, you know, the president is so dismissive of the hard work of diplomacy and its practitioners. It's also reflected in repeated budget requests from the White House to cut to historically low levels the budget for the State Department. Um, cut this year, it's proposed by 23%. Um, and you end up with a result, at least in terms of the White, what the White House is proposing, where the defense budget is 19 times the size of the budget for the State Department and for foreign assistance. Now, of course, you're never going to get any place in diplomacy unless it's backed up by military and economic leverage, by the power of our example. Right. I think it's foolish to let that imbalance get bigger and bigger. So, Ambassador, in the age of America first, what does that really mean for American diplomacy going forward, in your opinion? I think America at its best, what I knew over the course of my very fortunate career, what I learned, for example, working for Secretary of State James Baker and President George H.W. Bush at the end of the Cold War, is that we best promote our interests in the world through enlightened self-interest. In other words, not seeing every challenge just in narrow transactional terms, but trying to widen the circle of countries who share our interests and our values. That's why alliances matter and set us apart. And my, my concern about America first is not the obvious. Of, of course, any country wants to put its interests first. But I think it misses the point that we multiply and expand our reach and our influence in the world when we try to work as hard as we can with other countries who share those interests. So, Ambassador, are you concerned that America currently may be abdicating its role on the global stage? 
I am. I mean, I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is a pattern of a of a you know a major power in the world. The power in the world, the United States, it still has a better hand to play than any of its rivals, um, becoming a power in retreat. So it's not just yeah. pulling back from a whole range of agreements. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, as you guys okay. know, would have knit together 40% of the global economy across Asia around a well, set okay, of standards but, that matter to the United but States. The Iran is... Nuclear Agreement, the Paris Climate Agreement. And I think that abdication right. um, not only creates opportunities for our rivals, but it causes our allies okay. to lose faith and to hedge. But Ambassador Burns, Marshall Scholar, and all that, I understand what you just said, except both presidential candidates had to walk away from TPP to get elected. Both candidates yep. had to do that. How do liberal elites, and I don't mean liberal elites in terms of politics, mm -hmm. how do people of liberal diplomacy, of an outward-looking America, respond to the inherent historic American inwardness? How do you rekindle right. what we had? It's a really good question, because I think what we saw in the 2016, you know, debate over these issues and what we've seen for a number of years is a widening disconnect within our own society between, to be honest, people like me, you know, card carrying members of the Washington establishment and lots of American citizens who don't, in my experience, need to be persuaded of the importance of disciplined American leadership in the world, but where they're skeptical is about the disciplined part, you know, whether it's the experience of the Iraq war and two. 2003, the global financial crisis five right. years later, they wonder about that. And so I think, you know, it's really essential as people look at the 2020 campaign to recognize that disconnect and to be able to make the argument plainly to people across our society that, you know, smart foreign policy, smart leadership doesn't just begin at home in a strong, you know, political and economic system, but it ends there too, in better jobs and a healthier environment and more security. And that's, that's an argument we, we've too often taken for granted in Washington. So, Ambassador, as, as you well know, trade talks are ongoing with China. How do you think our country should view China, deal with China, to try to work with China over uh, the next several years, given their incredible uh, growth in the global space? Well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is I think President Trump and his administration are right to push back against predatory Chinese trade and investment practices. And in some senses, that's overdue. Um, I think this is going to be a long struggle. I don't think that there's going to be any kind of comprehensive grand bargain which fixes all of our concerns about China's practices. But this could be a useful first step. What I'm concerned about is how we go about doing that in the sense that I, it would be more logical to try to make common cause with our partners in Asia countries like Japan, with our partners in the European Union, who share a lot of those concerns about Chinese practices. And instead, we've kind of, you know, opted for starting second and third front trade conflicts with them. I think the issue here, it seems to me anyways, is not containing China's rise. China's rise economically, politically over the next few decades is a reality. But I think what we do have an enormous capacity to do is shape the environment into which China rises. That's the virtue of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's the right. virtue of working with allies and partners. And that's what we, it's that affirmative mm. vision that I, I see as missing oftentimes in this administration. And I think we all need to focus more on. Uh, Ambassador Burns, thank you so much. Bill Burns with uh, the back channel 
A Memoir of American Diplomacy and the Case for Its Renewal, and I'll emphasize there the phrase, the case for its uh, renewal. I'd mention is is he did James Baker and his support of the book, and of course, Secretary Clinton and uh, uh, Dr. Kissinger as well. But what I'd really note is John Lewis Gaddis says, Burns has written the best diplomatic memoir of the post-Cold War period. That's all you know. Absolutely definitive for those interested in American uh, diplomacy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.